Yes. In retrospect, I can draw out a map of like, all right, here's how I got to this job and, and what I do that makes perfect sense. But the bottom line is at no point did I actually understand that was the map. I kind of made each decision on who I wanted to work with and what I was excited about. And that's fine. It's like if you if you do that and you have people will help you with the strategy, then that all would work out. So I think that even though this is kind of a hard path, it's frankly in some ways pretty simple. And you do a good job in the clinic, find some research that you're excited about and work hard and find some mentors who will help you think about this, that it'll all work out. That's Dr. Will Parsons, today on Behind the Microscope. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. I'm Bijan Sadie, and this is Behind the Microscope, a podcast about the people and process behind the scenes of science and medicine. Today on the show, we are joined by Dr. Will Parsons, an associate professor of pediatrics in the Division of Hematology Oncology at Baylor College of Medicine. He also serves as the director of the Baylor Pediatrician Scientist Program, director of the Center for Personal Cancer Genomics and Therapeutics, and co-director of the Neuro-Oncology and Cancer Genetics and Genomic Programs at Texas Children's. Dr. Parsons earned his MD and PhD from The Ohio State University, did his residency in pediatrics at Johns Hopkins, and clinical fellowships in hematology oncology at the NCI, followed by a fellowship in neuro-oncology at Johns Hopkins. Today, Dr. Parsons shares his personal and professional journey to becoming a pediatrician scientist and discusses the role for physician scientists and PSTPs in pediatric medicine. Without further ado, it is my pleasure to welcome to the show, Dr. Will Parsons. I came into this career in some ways seemingly by, by chance. Um, I always knew I was interested in science uh, back when I was a kid and I had a grandfather who was a general surgeon out in South Dakota who would tell us stories of, you know, being the only doctor within a hundred miles and getting paid in chickens and, and apples and doing surgeries on everything from little babies to adults and, and all sorts of different stuff that I think probably made a big impression on me. So I think the unspoken plan was always that I would go into medicine or science, but I, I never really had a specific plan. And when I started uh, med school back where I was from in Columbus, Ohio to Ohio state, I, uh, I just started, I did not enter the MD PhD program. I did my first couple of years of med school and then uh, realized that I really wanted to get into the lab uh, and have that be a part of what I did. What, so, what made that, how did you come to that realization? Uh, a couple things. I mean, one, I had had some pretty, I had had some decent amount of, of research experiences in undergrad uh, in an organic chemistry lab as an undergrad and then working in one of the hospitals and more kind of applied applied or you know more translational clinical sort of research um some of the some of the summers and that sort of thing and i just i missed it and i realized that um i wanted to learn how to not just do a good job of taking care of patients now but be part of uh the group of people that was figuring out how we were going to better take care of them in the future and so i think there are both some theoretical reasons for wanting to do it and some practical ones that i just missed it and I decided that I wanted to go back. Um, so I actually just did, just took a year off. I did one of those, I don't know if they still have them, they were called post-sophomore fellowships in pathology. So at that point I thought I might want to be a pathologist. And it's basically a year that people would do between med two and med three. Um, that you spend about half your time doing clinical pathology work and then the other half of the year in a lab. And so I went to a molecular pathology lab, uh, found a fantastic mentor, Tom Pryor, who's a molecular pathologist at Ohio State. And uh, a couple months later, I remember going to talk to him and, and saying, you know, I think actually I, I don't want to go back to medical school uh, in June as we planned. I want to stay here and do a PhD, you know, and, and really get it, dive into this project, uh, these projects. Looking back, it was, uh, it's pretty incredible how helpful and kind people had to be, you know, mentors had to be to facilitate that. Now that I'm on the other end of it, where if some student came to me 
like right now is like, Hey, I, I want to join the MSTP in June. You know, I'd be like, well, that's not really how things work, blah, 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 you know? Uh, but they managed to, to make it, make it work out. So, uh, they helped me take a leave of absence from medical school and then they actually helped me formally join the MD PhD program, which from a funding and like lifestyle perspective was absolutely a game changer. Uh, so then I spent the next handful of years in lab uh, and, and then kind of took off from there. So how was the lab experience um, for you for gra- during grad school? It was awesome. I mean, it was really an interesting type of lab that I was working in that, uh, so it was a clinical molecular pathology lab, largely at that time doing kind of PCR, some sequencing, some targeted testing of muscular dystrophies, CF, you know, a bunch of neurogenetic disorders. This is back mm-hmm. before kind of the genome era, right? So mm-hmm. this would have been the mid, mid 1990s, essentially to late 1990s. Um, and so, but then there are also some graduate students and people doing, you know, some more basic research. Um, and I found it just really fascinating. I mean, I've always been interested in kind of the application of what we do and the application of genetics. So looking back, the same sorts of things that I was doing then, which were, um, you know, doing sequencing 1995 style, which meant mm-hmm. running a bunch of polyacrylamide gels, contaminating right. everything with P32. Having things rip, having things not develop properly, like all the all the same stuff that you know students now still deal with to some extent in terms of westerns and other some right. other stuff. Uh, finding mutations, uh, trying to figure what they meant, trying to figure out how we could devise diagnostic tests that would be clinically useful, trying to figure out what we could do with that information in terms of taking care of patients. The context has entirely changed because I transitioned to wanting to apply those things to pediatric cancer. But the basic mm-hmm. questions of genetic mechanisms and diagnostic testing and, and trying to figure out how to apply those things have been the same. So I loved it. I was very lucky to have and uh, kind of two mentors who were absolutely fantastic. One, Tom Pryor, who was the molecular pathologist and a mm-hmm. very clinically oriented guy. I mean, he's a mm-hmm. PhD. I recall, oh, really? if I recall, he's a PhD, um, but uh, a pretty clinically oriented or a clinical, clinical researcher kind of more and more focus. And then Arthur Burgess, who was a very basic uh, molecular geneticist there. And so between the two of them, uh, it was actually a really, really useful pairing in terms of, of learning about, you know, everything from the more basic aspects of, of, the disease we were studying at that point, which was spinal muscular atrophy or SMA, to to much more kind of practical issues related to all right, well, how would you make a a useful molecular test out of this? How does one right. get it approved in a clinical lab? You know, all that sort of stuff. Right, which is which is but, really cool. You know, we don't get that unless you work unless you happen to have those kinds of mentors. You don't get that in your MSTP training or whatever, and that might be a really useful thing to to. Ha- to know like how does yeah, where's the clinical specific. translational yeah right the pretty specific environment which is what i was interested in so mm-hmm. obviously if i if one were interested in much more basic questions then mm-hmm. might not be the ideal thing right because i did spend a decent amount of my time i mean even just in terms of the rules in lab right in terms of how specimens need to be handled how processes need to you know operations need to work when you're in a lab like that, it's the clinical concerns that drive everything, right? And then the right. research comes second. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm not saying it's less important, but obviously the clinical rules are the clinical rules. And so you have to kind of then figure out how, how you're going to adapt and, and go from there, which right. really was pretty fantastic. So that's where I did, I did my PhD in my med school at Ohio State. I had no idea what my clinical plan was going to be. I thought I wanted to be a neurosurgeon. Then I thought I wanted to be a neurologist based on kind of some of the research we were doing in lab. Uh, And then around the time of when I was finishing up grad school, going back to med school, um, I had a close family member who was diagnosed with cancer uh, that I ended up being partially kind of a caregiver for uh, that really made a big impression. And I also became very interested in our 
the pathology courses in med school and then cancer in general. Uh, so I decided that, that that's really what I wanted to focus kind of this genetics research on. Mm-hmm. So I signed up for pediatrics as my first rotation back. Uh, mm-hmm. At that point, we didn't do any of our clinical rotations before the PhD. So yeah. Uh, which I think most schools, my at Baylor anyway, and in most schools, I think they've they've gotten a little smarter about that and kind of inserted a little bit of clinical yeah. training. Yeah. I think there's it's an interesting question, but I think there's some value to to kind of getting some taste of it, right, and the idea of it before the PhD. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you kind of come out the back end and you're tra- you have to figure everything out on the clinical side. Right. Um, I don't think it's such an issue in terms of functionality and that none of us are super functional at that point, right? We're like, we're all, we're all in the same space of learning what we got to do and how to be right. useful on the wards and all that sort of stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think it'd been helpful. So anyway, I, I signed up for pediatrics as my first rotation back thinking it'd be a nice warm up to like adult medicine and, and some yeah. of the stuff that I thought I wanted to do and uh, got randomly assigned to pediatric oncology and that was it. That uh, was it. And yeah. It's like, I don't know. I was never someone who had a really, really specific plan of what they wanted to do. It was more, I chose to work with people I was excited to work with on mm-hmm. problems and things that I thought was were interesting. Um, yeah. What was it about pediatric oncology that, that drove you? Um, a couple things. I mean, I think in theory, it's, it's one of the pediatrics or one of the subspecialties. Well, okay. Pediatrics ended up just being a good fit for me um, because I, you know, everyone says they like kids. I love kids. I had kids. Um, I'm very comfortable and communicate well with kids, you know, but frankly, even more importantly, I found that I enjoyed and was very comfortable uh, communicating with parents, which is Mm -hmm. in many ways more the job of a pediatrician, Mm -hmm. right? Um, and then I just enjoyed that. And I enjoyed those relationships, both with the, the children as well as their, you know, parents and families. I liked kind of the family oriented aspect of pediatrics, which is a little different, I think, than, mm-hmm. than adult medicine sometimes. Um, and I liked the, the focus on, I don't know, you go to the pediatric floor of some hospital and it's colorful when they have yeah. people coming around with the dogs to visit people. You know what I mean? Like there's, there's, yeah. the there's kind children's of a hospitals is cool it's like it seems like yeah there's a little bit of more of a focus on both curing and and treating patients but also the whole experience for for the Mm -hmm. kids families which i i liked um i liked that uh can really develop these incredibly close and longitudinal relationships with with patients and families Mm -hmm. um because right as soon as a child's diagnosed with cancer their oncologist is their doctor, right? Like not just for kind of primary care stuff, uh, although not to say we know it at all as well as their primary care physician probably does. But at that point, you're kind of, until things have been sorted out, you're, mm-hmm. you and the family are on that, are on that, on that boat together. Um, and then I really just think a lot of it is just chance and that the, the resident, the fellow, the attending I was assigned that month just happened to be fantastic. They got me excited about it. I loved how they interacted with the families. I mean, I, I pretty firmly believe uh, if I'd had that same team and I was doing nephrology or I was doing internal medicine or anything, I think I, think I could have gone a different route, mm-hmm. you know, because uh, I was interested in a lot of stuff. But it was, yeah. And I think the the kind of in, in oncology generally the for MD PhDs and for physician scientists it's a it's one of the most straightforward kind of paths in that the linkage between the research and the clinic is so tight, hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, in terms of a lot of the treatments and a lot of the strategies for the treatments and the biology and the genetics and the mm-hmm. and the, all that that uh, there's some subspecialties where it's well, there's lots of cool research done, but it's more challenging or it's less a focus, right? Mm-hmm. I think in oncology, it's, it's pretty tightly interwoven in particular related to genetics and understanding genetic susceptibility to cancer and figuring out genetic weaknesses of cancers for treatments and that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. It's, it's all pretty intertwined and, and I love that part of it. 
That's really cool. So, so what's the path look like to become a pediatric oncologist or what did it look like for you? And was there research built into that when you did that? Yep. So it's the standard way it's set up, right? Is you, you do your medical school time, then you go on and do pediatrics residency, uh, which is three years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you would do a pediatric hematology oncology fellowship, which is another three years. Uh, and then if you're subspecializing after that, and I did an, an, another year of neuro-oncology, brain tumor specifically, then it's another okay. year or what have you. So it's a pretty long path. And for physician scientists or people involved in research, that kind of historically standard way to do it does not have a lot of time built in for that. Or it does in some pieces, but it's pretty fragmented. So for example, you know, during residency, obviously, unless you're in one of the physician scientists sort of training programs mm-hmm. or where you're following either the integrated research pathway where you have a year of research built in or the accelerated research pathway where the three years of residency become two, essentially. If you're not doing one of those, you know, you have, might have a month of elective or a couple months of elective or sometime like that, but there's really not a lot of dedicated research time other than you figuring out how to work around your primary responsibilities. Um, so I did actually an integrated research pathway. Okay. Uh, meaning... I basically did internship and then second and third year of residency, I did six months and six months, like back and forth between the clinic and the lab. Okay. At that point, I think I was, I think I was the first person in the, the pediatrics program at, at Johns Hopkins where I trained to do that. So I was a little bit of a guinea pig. This was before mm-hmm. there were any of the organized physician scientist training programs in pediatrics. There may have been some in adult medicine, although I don't think it was as much of a focus there yet either, mm-hmm. but in pediatrics, there was nothing. So yeah, there were pathways set up to do, you could do some research, but it was, it was not that standard. So I did that. And then during hematology oncology fellowship, most of the fellowships are set up such that you do a very intense clinical year and then second and third year fellowship there's a significant amount of time dedicated to research and, and whatever okay. laboratory or clinical research project you do, which is great. But so if you do a kind of a standard categorical peds residency and then a standard um, hematology oncology fellowship, you basically would go the three years of residency, then the two, then the one year of, of like first clinical year of fellowship, really not having much time for the lab at all. Right. And so I think the point of these various pathways and physician scientist training programs is to, to integrate the research into the residency years and then figure out how to transition that to the fellowship such that it's a, I mean, obviously it's always going to be broken up between the clinic and the research, but it can be a little more of a strategically um, Mm -hmm. devised experience, right? That it's not that you're like completely out of the lab for four years and then have to go back and you're like, holy cow, they can sequence genomes now or or like whatever, right? For six years or at that point, probably. Yeah. Um, and so what are some of the benefits besides that, besides just not, besides at least keeping touch with the literature and techniques and whatever, what are some other benefits of integrating research earlier in residency? I think for physician scientists at that point, the game really becomes figuring out a 10 year plan, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like the longer term. I mean, each of these steps for, you know, where you go to college, where you do your clinical training, there's a bunch of different places that could be excellent to do that. Right. And Mm -hmm. in some ways, each step, you just need to figure out the next step and that would be fine. But once you start getting, especially for a physician scientist or someone who wants to be a physician scientist, once you start getting in the residency to fellowship stage, you kind of have, want to have the longer term plan in mind of, all right, uh, 10 years from now, you know, eight years from now, 10 years from now, what job do I want and how, how am I going to be in the position to kind of, do that because it's a long path. You know, I, I, I liked all the pieces of it, but it's a long path. And it, the upside, obviously, of being a physician scientist is you can, um, you can devise a really specific plan for yourself, right? And you can evolve and change about how much clinic you want to do, how much research you want to do, how those are tied together, what you're going to focus on. In the lab, is it going to be more basic research? Or are you going to transition to more kind of translational and clinical stuff? Like that's the cool part, like to me, of being a physician scientist, of really being able to be at the center of, of all that and make some strategic decisions and kind of guide your own destiny in a way that's mm-hmm. 
frankly, pretty unusual in professions, right? But the flip side of that is you actually got to plan that, right? Like <laughs> to make that work. Uh, and so I think, frankly, the biggest advantage of like the, the position scientist residency programs is hooking you up with a mentorship team in addition to having some dedicated time for research, but it's not that much time for research, right? right. It's just um, it's hooking up with a mentorship team that can help you think about this, strategize this, give you a few other, help you acquire a few other skills that'll be relevant in terms of writing grants and you know doing that sort of thing. But basically connecting you with some group of people that can, like the diverse set of people that can mentor you, right? So people say when you come into your residency, if you think you're gonna do what you want to do is hematology oncology after that. So there's hematology oncology people involved from the start with you who can be thinking about, all right, so Will's going to be one of our fellows four years from now or three years from now. And we want right. to be one of our faculty six years, seven years from now. So what do we need to do to get there? Right. Mm -hmm. So have your kind of categorical residency and, and residency training. People are going to make sure you get the best clinical education possible uh, research folks who can match you up with appropriate mentors and help you figure out what you want to do in particular, if you, you change plans or get interested in something different. And mm -hmm. right, if it's all very straightforward, then you just kind of need to find a research mentor and yeah. you're, you're all set. Right. But like, yeah. if you want to integrate the clinic and the research or you change your mind about what exactly you want to do, or you want to spend, for example, that time during residency, learning some new skill, like learning about epigenetics that then you're going to go back in a or mouse modeling or something that then when you have your more sustained research time, you're going to want to apply. Mm -hmm. I think the biggest advantage of those programs, frankly, is having a diverse set of mentors that care about you and have kind of lived through this and know all the, mm -hmm. the stuff that can go down and how to, how to, how to solve problems and how to, yeah. how to really guide you. Um, did, go ahead. Did that. So did you, did that exist in a formalized way when you went through training? It did not. Mm -hmm. So I got very lucky in that I just found, I, I, I mean, I didn't, I, it was not luck in terms of picking a place that did good clinical work and, and had incredible right. researchers, right? But after that, it was kind of luck in that I managed to find mentors who, who helped me figure this out, you know? One, uh, Greg Cotto was a hematologist. I remember I did my, my, as an intern, I did my hematology, you know, inpatient month in part with him or something. And he's like, oh, what are you going to do in the lab? It's like, I, yeah, Sorry. it's my dog. It. My dog is here snoring. So, uh, and he's like, oh, well, why don't we go to lunch? And then we just sat there and he just, he was a hematologist. Uh, he knew like I was not going to work in his lab and I was thinking about things that were totally different, but he basically took the time to, map out with me, all right, here's all the faculty in our division that you should talk to. Here's the couple people who are interested in cancer genetics outside. That's amazing. Meet. Go meet these people. Yeah. Come back to me. So I did. We come back. We revise the thing. We think about other people. I start hearing and figuring out, like, all right, there's, there's, there's one obvious choice of who to work with here. But it, someone had to do that for me. And there's no, like, you know, it's, in like, it's not exactly in his job description, right? Or it was just him being frankly, a nice guy. And then I found, you know, matched up with clinical mentors and research mentors that were just excellent and things worked out. So like, if things all go smoothly, that's all it takes, right? right. Is, is getting in the right place, having someone kind of guide you to some of the right people and then working hard and, and getting lucky a little bit on your projects and doing a good job. That, and yeah. that's fine. I think the real value of the more structured programs is in all the other circumstances that can come up, like how to... Mm -hmm to help right right and how to, because how now to you have this you. this net of different mentors and different people who are kind of keeping track of you as opposed to just trying to exactly right so you have your categorical kind of residency program leadership who obviously care about you and and are very invested and responsible for your clinical training you have ideally your kind of physician scientist or research track leadership who are interested in a different way like for us i mean we kind of i basically defer any of the clinical training decisions or managing all that to our excellent clinical training program but mm -hmm. any of the you know the twice yearly mentorship meetings we have like with our trainees for example 
Um, our categorical residency program leadership will be there. Our physician scientist training program leadership will be there. Uh, a couple of specific other faculty, you know, who are either in the fellowship subspecialty that the students, that the residents going into will be there. Their mentor will be there. Like it's, it's a pretty diverse set of people. And for the complicated and civic paths of physician scientists, I think that's, that's really what it takes to, to not just find some path that's okay, because like, that's fine. And frankly, you could find some okay path with a whole lot less work and a whole lot less mentorship, right. but figuring out what's really what you think would be pretty cool. And, and you'd be really excited about spending the next, I don't even know how many years again, uh, 25, 50 years, you know, right. uh, working in that area. Uh, and that's, I think that's really the, the advantage, frankly. That's awesome. So, so when you, so, so after, I guess, I'm curious, how did you make the transition from trainee um, to assistant professor and, and starting your own lab and, and navigating applying for grants and that kind of thing? Yeah, this is in some ways entirely luck as well, or uh, just timing. And that, uh, so I, I did my, my kind of both my research time during residency and then my postdoc, essentially my postdoc, the second and third years of Hemonc Fellowship, mm-hmm. and then a fourth year as a Neuronc Fellow in uh, Bert Vogelstein and Ken Kinsler and Victor Valclescu's Cancer Genetics Lab. It's like a large, it's a you know very large multidisciplinary kind of group operation. My timing had been perfect in that I was interested in genetics, and right when I came to the lab, uh, you know large-scale sequencing projects became feasible and then next generation sequencing was invented like all this stuff just kind of happened enabling some of the kind of research that we're going to do so i spent my time you know a couple years working on some adult cancer focused projects because that was what the lab essentially did and then transitioned to some pediatric projects and frankly could have had i think a very uh sorry very nice path there as sort of the pediatric guy collaborating working with that group as part of these things and that was my basic plan i honestly had not thought about it much more than that but we liked living there i liked who i worked with i liked my clinical you know operations uh but then i got a cold call from susan blaney who was then the deputy director of texas children's uh, cancer and hematology centers uh, who i guess had seen me give a talk at asco or one of these meetings and invited me down for a talk in Houston. I had never thought about coming to Houston, mm-hmm. uh, growing up in the Midwest, training on the East Coast. It just wasn't, you know, I just hadn't, I'd never done really wide searches at any of the steps. I'd kind of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I went back home to Columbus for MD-PhD training because that's what made sense to do, essentially. And then I'd been in Baltimore and D.C. for about 10 years. Um, so I came down and I was naive enough that I didn't really understand, even understand what that meant, frankly, mm-hmm. uh, which was, you know, they were looking at me, thinking about whether I'd be a reasonable person to hire. I talked a little bit about my research, but I, what I more proposed essentially was a plan for developing a kind of cancer genomics program, right? Mm-hmm. Like studying how to apply all these new things that we were learning about the genetics of both pediatric and adult cancers and how to study that from what it meant in terms of cancer susceptibility to targeting treatments, to designing trials, to studying, you know, ethical and practical aspects of returning genetic results and that sort of stuff. And for what I wanted to do, which was in that space, it was just a perfect place because they had a Mm. great clinical hospital. They had one of the human genome sequencing centers that had been kind of initiated for the human genome project so they had all sorts of you know technical expertise and that sort of thing and then just a whole whole bunch of excellent researchers related to genetics developmental biology you know all the stuff that would be relevant to what Mm -hmm. i wanted to do and just a place that seemed to be excited about doing some cool stuff so i mean i came in and talked about looking back it's incredibly naive you know and that i was a um I don't know. I came in and kind of described as if, uh, hey there, as if I was going to create some new program and divide, Uh you know what I mean? Like run some show basically when I was just some fresh out of, fresh out of fellowship sort of guy. Uh, And instead of, 
instead of them being like, well, what the hell are you talking about? You know, uh, they were like, yeah, that sounds awesome. Let's do that. Mm-hmm. What would you need? How would we do this? That's like, amazing. What we get? And, uh, it just, just really, uh, really it was pretty cool. And they, they sold me Dr. Poplock and Dr. Blaney essentially, uh, sold me in a place to go. So then we uprooted and came down here and that was it. I basically then very quickly looked at a couple of other jobs just kind of as mm-hmm. a comparison, but I did not do any sort of real search, which is probably mm-hmm. not the smartest way to do things for people, but if it's, it were, it's I mean, if, great. right. So how long have you been there now? Uh, down here about 11, 12 years, something like okay. that. So I had one year where I was, after I was hired down here, where I was kind of going back and forth, still finishing up some projects and that mm-hmm. sort of stuff. Uh, but then I've been down here since around 2009 straight, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that's awesome. And so I want to talk a little bit about the pediatric PSTP. And um, so when did that program come into being? It's a good question. It came in, it's, it's about... Uh, five, six years ago, formally okay. came into being. So prior to that, there had been people at, at Baylor and Texas Children's who followed, you know, this similar sort of pathway. But six to eight years ago, uh, Jordan Orange and, and Jake Kushner, who were the, the original kind of co-director, director and mm-hmm. co-director of the program, as well as Audrey Burns, who's still here with us, uh, kind of devised this this whole plan and curriculum and, and the whole, like really formalized the structure of a program. Uh, and then about, I guess, six years ago, we would have been recruiting our first class down here. I might be off by a year, but I don't think so. Um, and uh, I've been on the, like the steering committee involved in it at that level that whole time. Then uh, mm-hmm. I, I uh, as kind of leadership transitioned over the last couple of years, we, we took over the program. But so essentially it's been uh, in its current kind of state for, for five or six years at this okay. point, I would say. Awesome. So what are some of those things? We talked a little bit about that the mentorship team is probably a big chunk of it. Yep. Um, are there other formalized activities that keep the, that, that keep the applicants kind of moving through this program? Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's there's kind of a few different areas of focus. One is the mentorship, which we talked about, which is by far, in my opinion, the most important. Frankly, the rest of the structure is is great, but way less important. Mm-hmm. Uh, secondarily, kind of the well, the social aspects of it, right? Like, so not just mentorship from from faculty, but but actually having a creating a community of physician scientists at every level, yeah. from you know lead program leadership and faculty down to including both, our, you know, fellows, our residents, undergrads, other MD, PhD students, either at Baylor or, or elsewhere, you know, at the, at the medical center in the area. So we have, you know, we have, this is all pre-COVID, of course, so right. we'll disrupt it at the moment. Uh, you know, monthly, uh, we had some fancy name for it, but essentially they're happy hours where we invite mm-hmm. uh, the students or the trainees pick a faculty member who they'd like to invite to come and basically give a how I got here sort of a talk. That's amazing. Is, they're just fascinating, right? Like yeah. everyone, there's common threads to all of them of finding incredible mentors, mm-hmm. uh, being people that were going to get excited and work hard at something and, and, you know, getting in the right place, but seeing what the decisions and the paths that each of these particular people, you know, have made from I think the last year or so we probably had, we had Peter Hotez do it. We've had, Huda Zogby, these are all kind of some of our steering committee members we've had. Um, Hugo Bellin, one of our developmental biologists, who just does incredible stuff. And they're all fascinating. And I love them because even at the at my becoming aged sort of level, like they're all they're all really cool stories and you can always mm-hmm. take something from them. So we have a number of events of that sort, some like some more informal happy hours, some noon sessions where in theory, some of them are, are structured around specific topics of, you know, uh, related to writing or grantsmanship or navigating the IRB or things like that, mm-hmm. but frankly are just as much for the purpose of community and socialization and, and letting people 
giving people a forum, trainees a forum where they can ask questions and get advice from, from mentors in all sorts of different contexts and from their colleagues, uh, yeah. which I think is pretty helpful. And then the third, which is probably the least important of the three after the mentorship and kind of the community is uh, some more of the didactics and the structure of it. I don't mean to minimize it. I mean, it's some super cool stuff that I wish I had learned in this way, mm -hmm. but basically first year, uh, we, 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 we basically organize the research time into a month or so during first year where you, you can't actually do much research. I'll explain it more in a minute, a month or so during second year and then 10 months of third year of residency okay. basically. So a couple rotations, like a capstone clinical rotation of what you're interested in doing, but basically the rest of the year in the lab. Mm -hmm. And then each year is kind of geared towards learning something and, and, I kind of some specific goal. So first year, uh, it's structured around the writing of kind of a case report, which okay. is almost always a molecular case report and often ends up being some more ambitious research study than that. Mm -hmm. But basically that month we spend talking about all the different, having learning and teaching related to all different aspects of writing and mm -hmm. uh, collaboration with people and strategy for projects and how to do clinically oriented research and all that sort of stuff. Um, during second year, it's geared around the writing of kind of the equivalent of a K grant, basically. Okay. And so we take awesome. our, our, our guys step by step through that, such at the end of that year, they've actually written and submitted to us a K equivalent grant that then uh, we have small funding mechanisms for. That's awesome. And so we kind of do it piece by piece where like we'll have one session, which is, all right, here's how you write a specific games page. Here's how you do your bio sketch. All right, bring your bio sketches. Let's revise the bio sketch. Like all this mm -hmm. stuff that none of us necessarily know, right? right? I mean, you so can it, learn it, it. It chunks it up and makes it iterative so that you can actually yeah. get the whole document done because it's daunting to look at. It really is. And it's frankly like a K application is no less complicated than an R01 or any, frankly, just about anything else, right? It's got all these different pieces. So we just go through it piece by piece and then culminate in um, an actual mock study section with uh, a bunch of our steering committee members who, who actually do that. And the trainees sit in on that, which could be Man. stressful, but we try to make it pretty uh, non-stressful. So they can see like, this is how it works. These are sort of questions people ask. This is what yeah. they look at, you know, that sort of stuff. And we give feedback. And so it serves a couple of purposes. One, this is second year, one is to learn how to do all that stuff so that then as a fellow or whenever the time comes, one, we've, our guys have learned how to do that a bit. And, and some of the pieces, a bio sketch, a career development, you know, document, uh, some mm -hmm. of the other things they actually have already done and would just need to be buffed up or modified yeah. a little depending on what the project was or how they evolved. Then the other point is they do that with a mentor, right? And so the other real big challenge of second year is, is figuring out what mentors they're going to work with such that they can be thinking about what they're going to do in third year of residency and then beyond during fellowship. Mm -hmm. Cause that's the best case scenario, right? That there's some strategy that, all right, we're going to learn how to do X, Y, and Z during these 10 months of research during residency. Then you'll do your clinical year of Hemonk, for example, mm -hmm. and then we'll get rolling on this project as mm -hmm. you know, the mice you've, developed will now be ready to go or right. you know that's awesome uh, having some strategy for it so mentorship kind of a social and supporting environment and then you know some structure about how you write grants how you do these sort of things i think those those are pretty much the key components of our program and probably some similar the, the format might be slightly different but the ideas are probably pretty close to the same everywhere i would guess that's really cool it's um, we've been, we've talked to various people about these PSTPs, some of them older, some of them are, have come online in the last five to 10 years. And, uh, some of the younger faculty we've talked to that didn't go through these programs really, um, regretted not having these kinds of structured things like the community. I think having community, even as MD PhD student is really critical because they're the only people that understand this sort of training pathway. Yeah. Um, and, um, but the grant writing, that's also super important because that's sort of the gig, but you don't really necessarily learn that anywhere else unless you, you know, and if you don't have a mentor that's teaching you that, then. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, thinking back, like, so I, 
I basically learned it just by having some people being very nice and willing to share their grants with me. And I, I basically just modeled them after them. Right. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and people were great, but like, so my lab mentor um, was fantastic. And obviously there's all sorts of grant funding, but there was no funding needed for my years in the lab as like a hemonc fellow and stuff. So from his perspective, like why would I waste my time at that point writing grants? Right. Right. right? I should just take the advantage of not needing to do that, do the work. But I had to explain uh, that, you know, kind of on our specific career trajectories, there's a value to getting some of those, you know, fellow orient, kind of fellow level career development grants and then some mm -hmm. K equivalent grants. It's, it's, not, it's not so much the money. I mean, in some cases, the money is very important, but it's right. the principle of the thing, you know, and showing that you know how to do it and kind of checking those boxes. So I got almost no... Uh, specific mentorship from him on that just because that wasn't what we were working on together but uh, other people helped me out and uh, and uh, when I had something to put together he was of course happy to look at it but there was no my point is not so much not 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 that they wouldn't have been willing to mentor me but there's just no structure in place to right. do that right because yeah. like the sort of grants he was writing were <laughs> 10 million grants for right. 10 million dollar grants for this or getting some foundation to, to give them X as opposed to like trying to explain like, all right, I need you to help me write this $30,000, you know, mm -hmm. young investigator award for whatever foundation. Right. But from right. our perspective and a career development perspective, it's incredibly important, right? Cause mm -hmm. you get those. And then when you're writing for the next, even if it's not much money, you're writing for the next layer of grants. They're like, oh yeah, he's done this before. Like there's some, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's funny how things work, but there's obviously just some uh, presumed credibility if you've, if you've been able to do that, that then mm -hmm. it's helpful, right? Um, in addition, those are some of the same, and in our field, like these pediatric cancer foundations that I got some of my first grants from are ones that I'm, I've been involved with ever since. And right. you know, Alex's Lemonade Stand Foundation, for example, I got, I think my first grant from them, uh, Young Investigator Grant in like 2007, 2008. Um, and I'm on their scientific advisory board now. And I got further funding from them for, you know, kind of a K equivalent sort of award later, which has been fantastic. And it's, mm -hmm. it's really nice beyond even the funding of just having this community of, of people in your field of researchers, advocates, patients, families. Mm -hmm. It's kind of, it's part of what makes it kind of cool, I think. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so I guess, so, so then after, so then you go into fellowship, you do research, do you have any goals for the, um, trainees as far as applying for grants or kind of what's the next step? Yeah. Uh, the next step I, I think is basically getting to the point where you can define what your job is going to be and get that job, mm -hmm. right? Like whether it's at your own institution or whether you know, you're going to go elsewhere. I think you want to basically, you're in a position if you, with these opportunities were given as like MD, PhDs, and in these position scientist programs, you have an opportunity to really define your career path in a way that that's pretty cool. But so like I was saying, so you got to do that. And so I think the, the challenge at that point is figuring out like, <laughs> this is the hard part, what do I actually want to do? Mm -hmm. Like, what's my job going to be? How much what patients am I going to see? How much do I want to see them? How is that going to tie in with my research? And really devising what that ideal plan is, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of going out into the world and seeing what jobs are available and then taking one of them, right? And I think that's kind of the, the difference of a physician scientist or MD, PhD should, they should not be thinking of this as, all right, uh, I'll go to the the listing of all the, the jobs that are available in hematology oncology at whatever website and look at them. It's more like, all right, I'm, I want to be the world expert in pediatric brain tumor genomics. Every one of you people should want to hire me. I'm, I'm you know, I'm not, I'm not no, but, I don't, like, that's that gotta be the idea of it. Right. That like, right. if it's a, if it's a bad year and it's not a good, you know, economic, like now it's not a great time, obviously I think for people who are looking for jobs probably at the moment, just because in general, not all, not all are not across the board, but institutions are probably a little cautious mm -hmm. of what's going on at the moment. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, you want to be kind of almost independent of that, right? Of someone to yeah. 
So this is someone that we want to be running our brain tumor program five years from now. This is someone that's going to have NIH funding for the next 25 years and that we are going to love to have as one of our faculty. This mm -hmm. is someone who's going to be teaching and mentoring both our PhD students and our medical trainees and everybody. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I think the challenge during fellowship is figuring out, all right, how are you going to get to that point? Right. And that can be, you know, writing a certain number of papers. It can be getting, you know, your first R01. It can be like just going through and in different subspecialties in different fields, it's a little bit different, right? But basically you want to do enough that you have some area of specialty and focus that someone would look at you and say, yeah, he's, he's going to be a future, you know, a future star and whatever that field is and that they'd want to invest in you um, yeah. such that you're not, I don't know. I've been very lucky in that my conversations about, for example, how much clinical time I'm going to do each year, uh, it's simpler now, but in the start, we're not like, you will do this or you must do this. It was like, all right, what, what makes sense to do? How much inpatient service? How much neuro-oncology clinic? How does this tie in with the research? What do you have time to do? What are your What's your grant funding going to be like next year? How much extra, you know, are you going to need some different time or some different structure, right? It's been mm -hmm. that sort of thing as opposed to um, just being told, here's, here's what the job is, here's what the deal is, right? You want to kind of hopefully have the credibility and then be at a, a place where you're working with people who are excited and invested in your career. Um, so I think that's really the challenge of, of sort of fellowship on, right? And that can be, you could be ready right after fellowship's done. You could need another couple of years after that, continuing in the lab. I mean, at that point, it's really a question of when are you going to have done enough to make yourself uh, an attractive candidate to get the job you want? Mm -hmm. um, so it's a little more of an individualized plan. And some projects and research obviously takes more than a couple of years to mature and develop. And then you just got to be patient. Other things might, you know, or people are interested in more clinical research. It might, might, there might be a different path or it might be that you need to get to faculty level sooner because then you're going to be running some trials and you're doing some stuff like there's no right. one size fits all, but basically the task at that point is figuring out how you can make yourself an attractive uh, faculty member in the job that you want to get. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Like, a, yeah. So, so, so sort of along those lines, I, and I've been asking this question a lot, almost to the point where um, I'm, it's obvious there's not a correct answer, but uh, there is traditional wisdom that you should leave whatever institution you do your training in at some point and go somewhere else. Mm. Do you think that that is, um, do you think that that still holds in this day and age? And secondly, do you think that it's a little bit different for physician scientists? Um, I've never bought into that rule, I have to say. Um, not that it might not be a good idea for many people to go different places, or there might not be good reasons for it, but specifically for the physician scientists and pediatrics say, I think when you're thinking about a residency program, you want to be thinking about some default plan, like, okay, would I be happy being at this place for 10 years, right? And yeah. beyond that, it, it becomes hard to, to predict, but basically to the point of getting your first job, right? Because mm -hmm. the best possible scenario is that you go somewhere, you get great clinical training and residency, you find an excellent mentor through one of these programs, you start doing some stuff in the lab, then you continue to do that research or something related to it as a fellow at the same place. And it's kind of been a smooth longitudinal like plan. And then you're in a position to figure out what needs to happen to kind of cap that off and get your faculty position. I think you want that as in theory, a default plan. Um, mm -hmm. And people should want to have you frankly. So I think you'd want to be somewhere like that, but that said, there can be many reasons for wanting to make transitions at the various steps, a mentor leaving a change in plan, uh, uh, you know, family circumstances, a significant other who's, also trying to figure out some complicated path like this and needs mm -hmm. to suddenly go to Utah or, you know, or wherever. Right. It can be an infinite number of reasons to do that, but you want to be in a position that if that happens, you're working with people that, that are really invested in you and your, your career and will help you make that happen elsewhere. Right. Like, mm -hmm. and just like they would at their institution. 
it is a little more straightforward at the faculty level, I think, at least based on my experience, to be recruited to go somewhere different because then it's, then it's an actual recruitment, right? right? Then it's like, all right, I'm not planning to come to Houston. Right. Why would I do that? Like, right. let's they talk have to about why I, would, and- why I would do that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, especially if you're happy where you are, you have some, like I would have been perfectly happy staying in Baltimore. You know, my family was all ensconced up there. My kids didn't want to move. Like they would have preferred it, frankly. (laughs) Um, So the yet to be, you know, that's an actual negotiation in academics and we're not expert negotiators. You know what I mean? It's not quite like the cold, hard world of business elsewhere, but it's kind of like that, frankly. Mm Whereas if you're someone who's training, staying the same place, you can get things in terms of becoming a faculty member and, and doing that sort of stuff, but it's not quite the same, right? Cause you're sort of a captive audience. They know you probably want to stay there or maybe you right. don't, but if you do, they probably know it. And mm-hmm. you know, if there'd been some plan that I thought was pretty much or close to as good back back home where I was, I would have stuck with it, right? I had to be convinced that this was a pretty unique opportunity to come right. down to Houston. So I think there's, there are some advantages in terms of transitions and negotiation at the faculty level, but mm-hmm. in terms of training different places, I, I don't think it matters too much. Yeah. Um, I was a little lucky in like, so that our, our fellowship is a combined one between Johns Hopkins and the NIH. It was, pre, it was pretty interesting to see how two different, entirely unrelated groups of Patients right. on the clinical side, for example, took care of patients, right? Like yeah. completely different antibiotics for fever and neutropenia, completely different protocols for handling X, Y, or Z. Right. It can be useful to, to see because you don't know like, well, what's, what are the things that are just law? You must do this to take care of a kid with acute leukemia versus what are the things that are style or preference or... Right. So I think there, I mean... From the clin- on the clinical side, there kind of can be some advantages to, to seeing how other people do things do it and how other people do things. But on the research side and the career development side, I think it kind of depends on the, the individual and the circumstances probably. That's awesome. I mean, that's a, I feel like that's the best way I've heard it put is that during training, maybe it's not necessarily that big of a deal, but, but as faculty being recruited somewhere is obviously you're being recruited somewhere. So that's a, that's a advantageous for your career because they're going to give you resources that you wouldn't necessarily get if you're yeah. just staying. It's an opportunity. You think about it differently, right? I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it makes it very clear that you're thinking about, well, what would be, what would be a really great scenario, right? right. Like what would I need to, to really do this as opposed to, you know, day to day and in our regular lives. I mean, yeah, we, we think about those sort of things sometimes but more you're usually trying to optimize like what you've got or how you might evolve right. a little bit right it's just a different mindset i think mm-hmm. that's I awesome know. one could take the main mindset one could do the exact i mean there's no reason you couldn't do exactly the same thing of negotiating with your institution and i'm sure some people do successfully do that but i think it's a little harder probably mm-hmm. yeah in general um and then Basically, my last question before we wrap up is what advice do you have for people who are third, fourth year um, uh, in medical school who are looking for, let's say, specifically pediatric PSTPs? Mm-hmm. Um, what, what's some advice you have for them as far as making them attractive as an applicant? And also, what advice do you have for them in looking for programs where they think they that that will support their careers ultimately. Yeah. So in terms of uh, looking at them as an applicant, it's pretty straightforward, actually, fortunately, right? Because like there are not so many MD, PhD applicants in pediatrics each year, right? Mm-hmm. There's I, I've seen the numbers at some point. There's 60 a year, you know, something okay. on the order of that, right? So it's a sufficiently small number that we can do a pretty kind of holistic assessment, right? We don't there's not some uh, step one score that rules people out from Mm -hmm. us, you know, not that there might not be something that you're like, wow, that's, I'm worried that this guy is not going to be able to academically do this. Right. But, but there's, there's no one thing. So we, we have a chance to really kind of think and look 
at each applicant in a way that might not be possible if you're a big categorical residency program getting a thousand applications, right? Mm -hmm. Where you just have to filter them out somehow. Right. So basically, um, our criteria are pretty straightforward in that, uh, number one, we want people who have evidence of being interested in the clinic, good in the clinic, and good citizens in the clinic, right? That mm -hmm. um, there are some physician scientists who know they're not going to want to do clinical work, right? That they want to learn about it, but then they want to go to the lab. And so those are not the folks we're looking for. And different programs probably have different attitudes about mm -hmm. that. But we want people who are really interested in being physician scientists. So we have to be convinced that they can come to our big residency program at Baylor and be good, good dudes and mm -hmm. take good care of patients and be someone that we'd all be happy to work with on the clinical side. Mm -hmm. That's not such a specific bar, right? Like that's just evidence of doing a good job in clinical rotations, having some nice evaluations, some, you know, nice recommendations from people. It's not saying you got to get honors and everything or, you know what right. I mean? Cause like that's, we all know how subjective a lot of that stuff can mm -hmm. be. On the clinical side, we just want to be convinced they're, they're good people and they care about the clinic and their patients. Mm -hmm. If they have that, then the research side is frank, frankly similarly simple that we want people who are excited about research, have some track record of being excited about it and having some productivity and importantly, someone that we can envision there being a match between their interests hmm. and what we've got. At, at, at our place That's awesome. um, yeah, in terms yeah. of, you know, having mentors that would make sense in terms of having labs that could work. Not that we have to have the plan like nailed down at that point. Right. But you want to at least be able to visualize, well, here's how it could work for this guy. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think from the trainees perspective or the students perspective, that's really what you need too. like, you're not, not like you're locking down some plan, but you want to be like, okay, I can see if I went to Baylor and Texas children's, you know, those guys would take good care of me. There's, ton of different mentors in genetics and developmental biology that I'd be excited about working with. There's good clinical training in endocrinology is what I want to do. And the details we'll figure out later, right? Like you need to have some coming. So good clinical citizens, excited about research and some track record of productivity, ideally, um, and then a match with us. That's honestly from, from us evaluating applicants. It's as simple as that, you know, specifics yeah. of, what exactly any of the scores were, where exactly somebody came from. We're, you know, there's cool applicants from, from all sorts of different places and with all sorts of different skill sets. So it's, I, I don't mean to overstate it, but it's honestly as simple as that. That's awesome. So, um, from the trainee's perspective, I think you gotta be convinced, number one, it's someplace that you'd like to live. And you need to picture that maybe you're going to want to live there for the next 10 years or what have you, right? Right. Like, you don't have to, but this is the ideal, right? It's something you're like, yeah, it'd be cool to live in Houston for a while. Uh, I'd like to be there or wherever. Um, number two, that you're convinced that there's mentors and people that would really care about you and, and mm -hmm. take care of you and, and figure out how to, how to guide you on this path and have experience doing it and want to do that with you, right? Mm -hmm. Which I think is pretty key. And then uh, third, you need to be convinced that uh, they kind of have a specific research capabilities and labs that, that, that are things that you'd be excited to do, mm -hmm. right? So like a place you'd like to go, obviously they need to be somewhere you're convinced does good clinical training and takes care of residents and people nicely, right. uh, good mentors, and kind of a research environment that, that could be supportive. I think those are those are the keys that's awesome and then well, my other advice is especially now to feel entirely comfortable reach, reaching out to the program directors or people mm -hmm. at any of these programs because it's uh um hey there it's uh the only way you're going to figure out these things is by talking to people and and you know getting more information and, and getting an impression of what it's like and if especially in an environment where people aren't going to be visiting all these places. Right. It's uh, more important than ever to, to feel comfortable talking with people and getting more info. Mm -hmm. And everyone should be happy and excited to do that, frankly. And if they're not, that that's a, that's a that's, red flag. That's information that's useful for you to do as well, I would say. Right. Right. So awesome. 
Well, thank you so much for this. This was so so awesome. We really appreciate it. No problem. Um, Sorry for the no, interruption in the middle. Oh, no problem at all. Um, Joe, did you have any last questions? Yeah, just a, a quick question. Thanks again, Dr. Parsons. Really, really appreciated um, everything. And, and it was really uh, um, uh, a, a lot of fun listening along. Um, I have a particular question about... Uh, as a faculty member now, is there anything that you know now that had you known as a trainee would have simplified things or would have made uh, your training process easier? Uh, that's a great question. I don't think so. I mean, honestly, I mean, I think, uh, I guess the one advice is that, uh, it can all seem pretty overwhelming and it can seem like an insurmountable number of tasks that need to be accomplished to both get through all these different types of training, figure out what kind of research you're going to do, find the right mentors, find the right program, do good work in the clinic, in the lab, get some grants, write some papers, get effect. I mean, like it's a whole bunch of check boxes, right? But the fact of the matter is uh, it's pretty simple that if you on the clinical side have something that you're excited about, and can focus and a huge amount of your your the challenge here is is much more frankly in terms of judging you is much more related to the research side of things right mm -hmm. at the clinical side you can do a good job you can take good care of patients right you can like that's something that that all of us if we're motivated to do and excited to do and willing to learn and work hard and treat people nicely like that frankly should be pretty straightforward. I know it's not easy, but it should be pretty straightforward, right? But you got to do that because that's just got that's just got to be a given, right? Like that that's that's just how it is. Like, all right, Will's a good clinician. We don't have to think about that anymore, right? Like it's it's mm -hmm. then the trick is really just uh, figuring out how to to do something on the research side that you're excited about and that people would be excited about having you because that's where the specific story for you and kind of what you want to do is what will make you interesting to, to people. Right. And, um, that's what you got to figure out for yourself. And so I've been very lucky in that I've managed to, through the mentors I've had and the places I've been, I've managed to figure out kind of a, a sweet spot of where my clinical interests and my clinical research interests and my basic research interests and my kind of mentoring and education interests all sort of overlap. Cause that's, that's when it's the best, right? That it's not like you're thinking, Oh, I'm wasting time talking with this hospital about this patient on this study and this, or doing the equivalent, you know, sort of thing that you do in clinic of refaxing the same prescription. We still fax occasionally, I guess, refaxing the same prescription that from the patient you saw in clinic yesterday. And you're like, why on earth am I doing this? Or why am I taking this call? there's always some of that sort of stuff, but if all of these things kind of are in the area that you're continually learning and excited about, then it's completely different. It's like, it doesn't seem, I mean, there's always got, there's always that sort of stuff, but um, the trick is really, I think, trying to figure out how some plan that you'd be excited about that all fits together. And that's the part that you really need mentors and people to help you figure out because it's not always, Mm -hmm. Not always obvious. In retrospect, I can draw out a map of like, all right, here's how I got to this job and, and what I do that makes perfect sense. But the bottom line is at no point did I actually understand that was the map. I kind of made each decision on who I wanted to work with and what I was excited about. And that's fine. It's like if you, if you do that and you have people who will help you with the strategy, then that all would work out. So I think the message would be, that even though this is kind of a hard path, it's frankly in some ways pretty simple. And you do a good job in the clinic, find some research that you're excited about and work hard and find some mentors who will help you think about this, that it'll all work out. It may not work out exactly as you picture it today uh, and that you mm -hmm. may change specialty, you might change, you know, I've transitioned from doing pretty basic research to really largely translational to clinical research now, uh, running clinical trials, that sort of thing. But that's um, that's kind of the cool part of, of being a physician scientist, frankly, is having the opportunity to make discoveries in the lab and then actually be involved in following them up, 
figuring out how they're going to apply to patients, how you're going to run trials. So it's, um, it's an awesome profession and, uh, the training can seem sometimes like, like a long path and it can be stressful trying to figure all this all out. But, uh, my advice would be that it's, it's, it can be more straightforward than you think. And you should take full advantage of, of, uh, the mentors that are out there, including mentors that you don't even know yet. You know, I mean, I get emails or calls or queries from people at pretty much every level of training now, like we, we all do. Right. And, uh, that's just cool, right? Like you should, you should be comfortable if there's somebody who does research in your area who's gonna be presenting at some meeting and you'd like to meet them or you'd like to talk to them or you'd like their advice on what you might do for a postdoc. You should, um, my advice is that you should be kind of bold about doing that and feel, feel comfortable doing it. Again, really appreciate the conversation and-, and uh, No problem, it's and, great and talking with you guys. Time. All right, everyone, that's our episode for this week. Our deepest thanks to Dr. Parsons for coming on the show and sharing his wisdom with us. Be sure to check out his faculty page in the show notes. And if you enjoyed this episode, please rate, subscribe, and share us with others you think would appreciate this content. If you have time, leave us a review on iTunes. And for more from the team here at Behind the Microscope, head to our website at www.behindthemicroscope.com. Behind the Microscope is executive produced by Joe Banke, Carrie Jansen, Michael Sayeg, and me. Our faculty advisors are Dr. Mary Horton and Dr. Brian Robinson. And I'm Bijan Sadie. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.